0: Well, much thanks to uh, uh, our music leaders and everybody that works behind the scenes with the kids. Greatly appreciate that. And when we clap, we uh, we give the glory to God and our appreciation to those that work behind the scenes, as uh, Psalms would indicate for us to do. So it was Christmas time. A couple was shopping at the mall. They stopped to look at this. Christmas crush scene, here's Mary and Joseph, shepherds, baby Jesus, etc. One shook his head and said, look now, they're putting religion into Christmas. Well, (laughs) what a, a confused world with that thought. I invite you to take the word of God and turn with me, please, to John chapter 1, that which we've already had read to us this morning. And there's not one single passage that tells us all the reasons why Christ came. So this week and next week, we're going to look at some of the direct statements uh, of Jesus and other scripture. Why Emmanuel, God, came to us in the flesh. And next week, we're going to address some scripture that talks about the issue, is it right to celebrate Christmas Or not? We'll look at that. I'm reading and making some brief comments from this magnificent passage from John chapter 1, 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the Word was God. Excuse me, I I read that wrong. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And finally, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. and We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, if we were in a small group or a Sunday school setting, we could just... uh, Analyze this a little bit and see some of the things we learn about Christ. They would include, of course, that the Word, whoever the Word is, was in the beginning. But that the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That the Word was the Creator. Hebrews 11, 1 says, By faith we understand that the worlds were made by the Word of God so that that which presently exists did not previously exist. We're told that the Word was life and light, that the Word was misunderstood. And then our clue, of course, to know clearly that this is talking about the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God the Son, and the Son of God, the Word became flesh. He came to offer to all who would receive him eternal life, even to those who believe on his name. Verse 13 here has troubled some because it says, who were born not of blood. That's talking about our family line because my parents are Christians. I'm not automatically a Christian. I need to be born again. Verse 13 says, nor of the will of the flesh, simply because I say, well, I'm going to get to God, and I choose in my flesh to say, I'm going to be a follower. No, it is a matter of Christ-giving life, nor of the will of man, but of God. And to all who received him, he gave the promise, the power, to become children of God. Why did Christ come? This week and next, I've tried to take some direct statements of Scripture that uh, address this issue. And let's begin, in fact, in eternity past, Christ came to fulfill the plan of the Holy Trinity. Some people would think, oh boy, Adam and Eve really messed it up in the Garden of Eden, which is true. So now God had to come up with some sort of patch-up plan to fix things. No, From eternity past, the members of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned what we call redemption. And they planned the incarnation of God coming in the flesh. This is why Revelation 13 would refer to the Lamb of God, Christ, who in the plan of God was slain from the creation, or the word literally is from The foundation of the world. Before God ever allowed Adam and Eve to do their sinful thing, before Satan ever did his sinful thing, God had a plan to redeem those who would repent and believe. And in the plan of God, the Lamb of God was slain from the very foundation of The earth. This is why Hebrews says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice, and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Now, ever since Abel and Cain, sacrifices were offered. Millions of lambs down through Old Testament history. But there comes a point when God says, Now there's enough of the foreshadowing the picture of the symbol. No more sacrifice and offering, but you, God, through the Virgin Mary, as we studied last week, prepared a body for me that I might come and be like humans in every way, yet without sin. All right, number two, clear statement of Scripture, Christ came to seek and to save the lost. Christ often referred to himself in different ways. But the most often was not that he called himself God or rabbi, teacher, but that he had called himself the son of man. That is to emphasize that he is the child of a human. He is son of mankind. And why did he come? To seek and to save the lost. I love to read rescue stories. I love to read those in which people go out and make brilliant, daring sacrifices to save people that are in terrible situations. I think at the beginning of COVID, the world kind of stopped for a couple of weeks and held their breath as we knew that there were 12 boys and their soccer coach in Thailand that were trapped In the cave. Remember that? These guys had played soccer. Their coach had often uh, gone out. with They'd gone up to three miles underground exploring. And uh, this day, because of the climate conditions, the cave shut. And so it seemed like day after day after day. We heard the news, there's no way to get to them. It became an international affair with British archaeologists archaeologists and, and marine scuba divers and others. And then what joy around planet Earth when the rescue mission was completed and those that they were coming to seek and to save were no longer lost and destined to die. Here's the greatest of all rescue stories. Here's the greatest of all rescue missions, that Christ, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. So in the Anglican church, uh, they use a a lot of liturgy where there is response back and forth. And in a large Anglican church, uh, at one point for the priest, the microphone failed. Now, the printed program said that he was to say, um, peace to you, and they were to reply, and with you. His mic broke at that point, and uh, he said, there's something wrong with this. They didn't hear what he said. They just followed the program. He said, there's something wrong with this, and they replied, and with you. (laughs) And the reality is there is something wrong with us. The issue is called sin. Sin. A couple decades ago, somebody wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin? The concept that there is right and there is wrong, and our issue is that sin has separated us from God. That God has given us ten basic laws that we are to obey with all our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. But next to the glorious holiness of Christ, we are guilty. We've, in the words of Roman, Romans have fallen short of the glory of God. Why does there have to be a redemption, a purchasing back? Why does there have to be a rescue mission where the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost? Because something indeed is wrong with us and what's wrong with us is an offense against God. The word sin just literally means to miss the mark. The word transgress means to go over against. We've done both. We've missed the mark of God's perfection. We've transgressed against God's holiness. So Romans chapter 1 teaches us that creation makes us aware that God is above us when twice in the Psalms it says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It really can be translated, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God that I have to give an account to. Because the atheist doesn't want to give an account to the invisible but all present God. But creation tells us, according to Romans 1, that God has through his very creation spoken to us, that God is there and that the heavens proclaim the glory of God. Now, it doesn't tell us about his mercy, his perfect holiness, and his salvation plan of grace, but creation tells us God is above us. Our conscience teaches that God is around us. If we have any honesty within ourselves, we know that. But then we come to much of the Bible The first two-thirds of the Bible called the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. In one word, it's summarized as law. And it tells us that God is holy, but that we're not. And so, in a sense, this wonderful, life-giving God gives us a law that is against us. That's why Galatians 4.4 says, "...when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son..." Made of a woman, made under the law to deliver us from the curse of the law. Now, the law is good because it teaches us what a perfect God is like, but it's bad in that it shows us we fail and we can't keep it perfectly. And so the law teaches that God is against us. But then we come to this wonderful name, a title that we glory in at Christmas time. Emmanuel means God is with us. And then I think the message of the New Testament in one word is grace. If God be for us, who can be against us? Now, what we needed in life was not just an educator. Jesus was a rabbi, a teacher, but he he that wasn't his primary purpose. Uh, technology is not that which is going to ultimately save the world from sin. We didn't need a soldier or someone. What we needed was a savior. Amen? Amen? We needed one that would seek and save that which was lost. And so at Christmas time, God gave us that which we needed. All right, number three, scripture says that Christ came to adopt us. Here's Ephesians 1.5. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus. And so here's a wonderful truth, that even in time past, God planned that we would be his sons and daughters by son choosing. Now, salvation has all kinds of parts to it, Predestination is not something to fight about. It's something to understand that even before time, God loves us. And when we are born again, that's called regeneration. Justification then means at the very same moment, we're made right in the sight of God. That the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to our account. That we are sanctified, meaning we're set apart for him and unto him. And positionally, we are His set apart forever. Practically, we need to grow in grace and in our sanctification. But then ultimately, God's plan is that we will be glorified. That when we see Him, we will be like Him, and we'll be in the presence of the blessed Savior, uh, doing incredible things beyond what our mind can think of with perpetual freshness and holy adventure in our glorified state in heaven. So, to go back to this whole idea of adoption, uh, this wonderful aspect of child choosing. Now, I I know I preached on it uh, several months ago, but um, I want us to remember that in the Roman world, the greatest of privileges was especially for an orphan to be adopted by a Roman soldier or a Roman citizen. You say, Jim, did that that really happen? Yes, it really did. It was more common than we might know that here is a a lonely soldier uh, in uh, Israel, uh, maybe an officer with his wife in the Holy Land, and the Romans specifically made provision that they would find a child that was homeless or needy. They'd bring him to the public square. And they would officially and publicly announce, We adopt you. You are our child. With that background, Romans 4, 1-7 says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything, But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Papa, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and a son and an heir through God. I I shared with you what's been called America's most radical social experiment was that at the end of the 1800s in New York City, there were tens of thousands of children living as orphans. And without going through the details again, a godly young minister named Charles Durling set up what was called the Orphan Train with the concept that orphans starving in New York City could get on a train and head west. And there they would be adopted by farmers and families that were hopefully pre-screened and passed the test of kindness and they would officially become their children. It's amazing that uh, something like 80,000 plus children were adopted under that right up until the 1920s and that some became senators, two became vice presidents, they became inventors and uh, people that poured themselves into this american experiment of a a person working out a blessing to be a blessing to others it it's an illustration of why christ came to adopt us as his children all right first john tells us that christ came to destroy the works of the devil here's the verse the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the devil's works And so scripture says that Satan came only to kill and to steal and to lie. But that Christ came to give life and it came to give abundantly. And so in the process sometimes of doing the ultimate good, evil has to be dealt with. Evil things like cancer, cancer. And uh, the treatments that are so painful and so difficult with the goal of health being restored, the tough love that we try to show to our kids, not because we like being tough with them, but we want them to be responsible. There's been quite a misunderstanding of recent generations of uh, some of the military's planning to end World War II. People have been critical of the landings of Normandy. The way that General Eisenhower and his staff did it was to try to minimize casualties, both on the Allied side and the Axis, the German side. The reason that that terrible bomb was dropped in Hiroshima or Hiroshima and Nagasaki was not because the leaders wanted to destroy millions of lives. But they estimated that a full-out assault on Japan would cost 2 million Japanese and allied soldiers' lives. And this would cut them, cut that back to far by half. What a terrible decision to make. But destroying evil sometimes means that we're active in dealing with that which is wrong so that we can do that which is right. Well, Christ certainly came to show us God's love. I hope you love 1 John 4.10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. The old word there is propitiation for our sin. It means a complete and satisfactory substitution. Ah, here's love. Not that this old world first loved God, but that he loved us. And in eternity plans, in eternity before time ever began, he planned that he would send his son in the great rescue mission. Well, finally, and we saw this recently in the book of Titus, that Christ came to specifically make his people a unique people that are eager to do good works. Here's one of or two of the verses from Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. How often the New Testament emphasized that we can't be saved by our doing good, But as a result of having received the gift, we want to be those who do good. The early Christians were often lied about. They were mistakenly identified as cannibals. Crazy accusation because they talked about eating the blood and body of Christ, which we take as symbol in communion. They were accused of being immoral because They had what was called agape feast, love feast. But it was a holy time of fellowship and eating and helping one another. They were accused of being atheists, of all things, because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. And so it went. But there's one thing that history records. These Christians did good. When disease would plague a city, the Christians would often stay back and nurse and help the dying. Thousands of children were raised beneath the city of Rome in catacombs, tunnels, because the Romans would simply let their children that were special needs children, we'd say today, that, that, that maybe were born without a limb or an eye or whatever, they would just let them die of exposure. And the early Christians, most of whom were slave, would get up far before dawn, before their jobs began, and gather these children and raise them. They would adopt them as their own. I've mentioned to you one of the unique writings about how some Roman people came to Christ was called thin-walled evangelism. They overheard, because of the very thin walls of what we call apartments today, that uh, hundreds of thousands lived in, in Rome, they heard the conversations of the Christians. And it made a difference. Ah, who started the orphanage? Caring Christians. Who made the most advances in, in helping those who were hurt in battle like Florence Nightingale? Who was it that invented that delicious tasting stuff called Listerine. Joseph Lister, who was, con- who was convinced from the Bible that there's an invisible world as well as a visible world, and there were such things as germs that could be prevented. Go back and look at almost all of the early colleges and educational institutions in the American colonies. They were founded to help people to read and to read the Bible And to become missionaries to the American Native Indians to bring them the good news of the gospel. And so it goes on that amazing amounts of good have been done by believers that often this world doesn't understand. And this is why Christ came that he might forgive us and set us on a new path that we would have a passion. Not to earn our way to God, but to express our gratitude to God by doing good among people. So I've been looking forward to telling you my favorite Christmas play story. It happened really not so far from here in a small community, not so different from Perry, in a community-type church not so different from Graham. And it was Christmas time in this little city in Ohio. They always made a big deal of the Christmas play and incorporating as many of the kids as they could. And um, this year, Wallace Perling took to the idea that he wanted a speaking part in the play. Well, the only problem was Wallace, as dear a kid as he was, is what we call today a, a special needs kid. He was supposed to be in the 8th grade, but he was uh, actually in 4th grade. But his fellow students loved him because Wallace was the protector of the little kids. He was the big brother to the bullied. He was the one that with uh, maybe limited ability, but a great heart, was the favorite of all who knew him. He went to the director and this year he let her know that he just didn't want to pull his bathrobe out again this year and be a shepherd. He wanted to have a speaking part. And uh, the, the, the play people got together and they said, well, what, we, we don't know what Wallace would do under the pressure of uh, the play. And they said, let's let him be Joseph. Joseph has just one line. No room at the end. Be gone. So they had Wallace Perling work diligently with his one line. Night of the Christmas, nativity play came. The church is packed. All is proceeding well. And then Mary, obviously very pregnant, and Joseph appears to the innkeeper. May we have a room. No room at the inn, Wallace said. Be gone. And Joseph said, but sir, My wife is about to have a baby. Could you please provide some place that she might stay? No room at the end. Be gone, Joseph said. And as he said it the second time, the people sitting up front said that they saw tears beginning to come from Wallace's eyes running down his cheek. And as Joseph slumped over in despair, and he began to lead Mary away from the end, The people heard Wallace call out, wait, you can have my room tonight. (laughs) Some people said it wrecked the Christmas play. Others said it was the best they'd ever seen. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord. With our hearts quiet before the Lord, we should thank Christ that he came to seek and to save the lost. Say with our hearts quiet before Almighty God, if you've not received Christ as Savior, I would encourage you to simply acknowledge, I have sinned, but I believe Christ died for my sin and rose again. Christian, oh, that we would be grateful for the real reason for the season. And then, Father, help us in light of your great gift to be a people that are eager to do good works and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.